took me about two years to really hear my mother's permission to be more open and adventurous sexually. So I, through all of that, about, I don't know, a year into that exploration, I am on a massage table with a professional tantric practitioner, a daka and a dakini, and another person that was like a pleasure expert for women. I identified female at the time. And they're doing their work to stimulate my body. And they're all standing like near the foot end of the massage table, looking between my legs with their heads cocked and their eyebrows furrowed, <laughs> and their hands on their chin. <laughs> That's not what you want to see when you're like trying to have an orgasm. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Welcome back for another episode of Interstates and Heartbreak. Today is a very, very special episode because I have Monica Jane, a certified erotic blueprint coach, and she is here to talk about all aspects of sexuality and relationships. And she studied a range of specialties with experts in their respective fields. So, you know, just to name a few, she studied vulnerability with Brene Brown, relationships and polarity with Allison Armstrong mindset with Dr. Joe Dispenza, and sexuality with Jaya. So clearly, she is so well-rounded and an expert in so many fields, and I am so excited to have you on, Monica. Thank you so much for having me, Leslie. I'm excited to be here. Yes, this has been a long time in the making and well worth the wait. Yes, it has. (laughs) And I would love to just start off with a definition of the erotic blueprint from your professional standpoint. Awesome. The erotic blueprints are like the five love languages are for love. The erotic blueprints are for turn on and arousal. So sometimes it's hard to love someone the way that they want to be loved. And the love languages teach us five different ways that people give and receive love. And when you match up that way, your relationship and communication improves. So with the erotic blueprints, some of us are matched up with partners that what we enjoy and turns us on or arouses us does not do the same for them. So I approach my partner with what turns me on, my partner approaches me with what turns them on, and we flatline. And so the erotic blueprints demystify sex and arousal and turn on and attraction so that you you can approach each other with the right language not right as in right and wrong, but the language that's appropriate for your body. And you approach them with the language that is appropriate for their body, the most feeding and turning on way. And they were created by Jaya. You said the name perfectly. Jaya is a somatic sexologist and sexological body worker who had her hands on and hands inside of thousands of bodies over the course of 20 to 25 years and in that time frame, she noticed and discovered that people had different turn-on patterns, different arousal patterns. So if somebody, if cock body people came in for erectile dysfunction, not every single cock body needed the same 
the same treatment in order to maintain erection. Not every cock-bodied person needs to be approached the same way. And so through that experience, she realized that, oh, wow, these cock-bodied people who are having erectile issues, one needs eye contact. One needs me to go straight for the blowjob. One needs a massage and some conversation. Another one needs me to dom him. Things like this. And so Cosmopolitan Magazine, for instance, taught me when I was growing up that the way to keep a cock-bodied person's cock hard was to give an amazing blowjob, to wear certain clothing and things like this. And so what we found uh, with the erotic blueprints is that there is no monolith of a cock body or a vulva bodied person in how to approach them with turn on and arousal. And we can get into more detail on them, which I think we will throughout our conversation. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And I love opening with that. First of all, just wanted to call out, I love the distinction that you use for cock bodied versus vulva bodied. And just to make it very clear about how you're kind of approaching individuals in terms of strictly their genitals for the purposes of this discussion. And yeah, I think it's just so important to remember how different people are because it is very easy to paint people as a monolith. I think especially when you are speaking about people who have a penis, I think there is an assumption that they can all get off in the same way and that it's extremely easy for them just in our society as a whole. And I think that is kind of being peeled back as we become more and more conscious about sex over time but it's still very deeply ingrained in our society. And so it's so important to remember that no, people have their distinctions and everyone is individual. And that just because things aren't necessarily working off the bat with your partner, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not salvageable. It just means you might not be speaking their sexual language just yet. Exactly, exactly. And I love that you called out the language that I'm using. And I also want to acknowledge and give space for intersex folks here as well. It's just that the media only represents and normalizes cocks and vaginas. So I didn't mean to exclude anyone with intersex genitalia in this conversation. You are welcome. You are included. I am an LGBTQIA plus certified coach. I myself identify as genderqueer and gender nonconforming. And so I use they, them, or she, her pronouns. And you're exactly right. Like somebody with a cock if you go straight for the blowjob, they might go flaccid. And if they identify male, they think they're not manly enough because they went flaccid and they should, according to media and society, that should work for them. So a lot of people come on the other side of the binary, like vulva-bodied cis female, might not be turned on and aroused by romance and candlelight dinners and rose petals to the bed. That's me. And so I thought I was broken. I thought that I was a defective woman when I identified female and was brought up socialized Mm -hmm. female. I thought I was broken and that there was something wrong with me. And I was like a bad woman because that stuff didn't turn me on. And so we'll get into these topics more as the interview goes along on why and where we learned or were taught that we're defective sexually. When really what it is, is that society has a monolith for men, men like dick and vagina and naked bodies and getting off and women like roses and candles and uh, romance and massages and oil and a ton of foreplay. 
And if you don't fall into those categories, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. So thank you for everything you just said. Yeah, it's so limiting and I can't wait to unpack all that. But first, I really wanted to hear more about your background because you have such a really interesting journey that you've taken to get where you are today and would love to hear about your inspiration to get in your current field and your transition from the corporate world. Because if I am correct, you actually had a background in both real estate and the aerospace industry, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So vastly different. (laughs) So vastly different. Yes. So like you said, it's very dynamic. And what we'll learn is that I am a shapeshifter in the erotic blueprint. So what that means is I'm a variety pack. And so that explains the extremely dynamic life I've had so far in the way of my career and lifestyle choices and everything. I need variety. So shapeshifters are seen by the world as sometimes they're seen in the shadow of like being neurotic or flighty or flaky or not dependable because they are never the same for the most part. So that's me. So it all started. When I grew up in a cow pasture in Wyoming near Utah, and I say cow pasture because that's what it was. I did not grow up in a town and there were no services out in the cow pasture. Wow. (laughs) If anybody's seen Napoleon Dynamite, (laughs) the long road that he lived on. Amazing visual. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. So the long dirt road that he lived on and there's like like an old man with the cows across the street that's where and how I grew up that film was actually made 3 hours from where I grew up across the border in in Idaho oh so wow anyway i grew up catholic and that area being near utah was dominantly like 95% mormon lds so i'm saying all of this to point to The framework that I use and teach is the framework that I created after 21 years of self-development. Society, culture, religion, and family influence who we become. They tell us and teach us who and how to be to be acceptable human beings and how to belong and not be rejected by society. So my society, culture, and religious influences growing up were so strong, like extremely conservative cowboy culture. Mormon LDS, religious influences plus Catholicism. And then in my family, I grew up as a child of an alcoholic and drug addict and also lots of codependency and stuff like this going on in the household. So as a child of an alcoholic, one of the roles that children take on is the perfect person. And then other roles are like a rebel or a recluse that doesn't want anything to do with anybody. And that's what my siblings took on. Mm. So I became the perfect person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a recovering (laughs) know-it-all and recovering perfectionist. And I got the best grades, was put in the advanced level classes. I went to college after high school because that's what you're supposed to do. No one in my family had ever gone to college. And I majored in business because I didn't know what to major in. But what I knew and was taught by society is you do not major in art, theater, dance, or singing, which is what I would be doing today because I'm myself if I went back to college. Mm -hmm. So I got my business degree. And then I actually ended up with a dual degree, triple major, because I had to do all of things as the perfect student. 
And then I went into corporate America to pursue the American dream because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I say this part of my life is where I was a robot zombie. I was so programmed by society, culture, religion, and family on who and how to be that I was not in touch with myself at all. And if you fast forward to me being 28 years old, by then I had been in finance, accounting, a real estate agent, and a salesperson for an alternative health magazine. And my mom was, as I was at that alternative health magazine, was diagnosed with cancer. And she and my father ended up moving where I lived so that I could be their primary caregiver and patient advocate. And I spent 13 months trying to save my mom's life. And my mom was my best friend. I talked to her every day before they moved to the town that I was in. I spoke to her by phone every day, whether it was for 30 seconds or three hours. It was really hard. And over those 13 months, we talked about all kinds of topics. And one of them we talked about was growing up, not being able to show emotion or process emotion because of my father being an extremely emotional, wet or dry alcoholic and drug addict. And so on her deathbed, I know this is a long intro, (laughs) but on her deathbed, I started asking her the questions that you're supposed to ask. on the deathbed, like, what's your favorite color? What does it take to be a good mother? How did you know dad was the one? Any message or wisdom you'd want to leave the world? And what I realized is I had this question for her that was about sex. We'd never talked about sex. And my mom was the stereotypical prudish Catholic mom that would cover my eyes when we were watching the nighttime movie on ABC, (laughs) when they were getting frisky, she'd cover my (laughs) eyes. And then if it got too noisy, she would lay my head down in her lap and cover the other ear with her other hand. And then let let me back up when it was quote unquote safe. My gosh. Yeah. So sex was not something that we talked about. And so I knew that, but I also was only 28 at the time. And I evaluated it and said, if I don't ask and never find out what could have happened, she can say no if she doesn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I'll have to live the rest of my life, like maybe 70 years, wondering every single day what would have happened. And I just decided I couldn't live with that. So with that intro, I asked my mom if I could ask her a question about sex. She said, what is it? Mm-hmm. What is it? And I said, mom, have you ever had an orgasm? And she took a deep breath and looked around and looked back at me and said, I don't know. I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> Not the answer that you were expecting at all, I'm sure. <laughs> Not at all, because I had had 10 years of penis and vagina penetrative sexual experiences and 14 years of fooling around. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if I was having orgasms or not. I was pretty sure I wasn't mm-hmm. because everything that everybody else talked about, I wasn't experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so... In the first and only conversation about sex with my mom, which happened on her deathbed, it ended with her saying, if I had it to do over again, I would be more open and adventurous sexually. Wow. That's so powerful. Yeah. 
it was so powerful. And, you know, my mom's dying in the moment. So I don't know that I fully absorbed it in that moment. But two years later, fast forward, I'm in aerospace and defense as an international importer and exporter of dangerous goods. (laughs) Wow, what a title. (laughs) I know. Negotiating contracts with the departments of defense of countries around the world. My gosh. (laughs) So that we could export our product and, you know, have other countries buy it. It was wild. I went to Washington DC many times for trainings to be able to negotiate with other countries' governments to import and export dangerous goods, like explosives in and out of their country. I feel like you have like a lot of secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) We might get into some of this. If you fast forward two years after my mom said that to me, I was having nervous breakdowns, quite frankly, not diagnosed, but panic attack feeling and nervous breakdown feelings in my pursuit to be so fricking perfect. And I had the six figure executive level job. It was like the classic case of the upper twenties, low 30 something year old white girl in corporate America worked her way to the top way too fast, had way too much responsibility. And it almost killed me. And so I quit everything. I quit that job and I gave everything away and took off around the world. And that's when I started pursuing my sex education, the sex education that every person deserves to have before they were 18 years old, but didn't get. I set off on that journey then. So that's my intro. (laughs) That is so amazing and such a journey. I feel like there's so much to unpack because it just requires a lot of bravery on all levels. Because for one, I think a lot of people, you know, they might wonder and they might think, oh, I would love to know about my mom's experience with sex, but would stop there and wouldn't really think to ask. And so I just love that that was likely one of the first early steps of like awakening this in you and kind of leading to the realization that you were destined to be in this space rather than the space that you were in. And also just quitting when you're at that level of success, I feel like the majority of people wouldn't do it. This was not even at the same level, but I think back to when I was in college, I studied abroad in Spain and I loved it so much. And it was a shorter study abroad period. So I told myself after I graduate college, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to bartend and become fluent in Spanish. And Spoiler alert, I didn't do that. I took a job with Teach for America. There's nothing wrong with that. I had a great, well, I learned a lot from that experience and it helped me grow quite a bit and it was really rewarding. But there is part of me that's like, what if I had done the brave thing and gotten out of my comfort zone and traveled like you did? And so to do it when you had already attained that level of success, whereas most people would be like, oh, I need to maintain this lifestyle. People will think I'm a failure is just really admirable. Thank you so much. It was so scary and exciting all at the same time. And honestly, like one day I just looked around the great room of the house that I owned with the three car garage and the three bedrooms and the den. And I had the partner in the new car and the red KitchenAid mixer on the counter of the kitchen. Yes. Classic status symbol. Everything that Better Homes and Gardens told me I should have matching throw pillows with curtains. And I just looked around and I said, 
why the fuck am I so unhappy? What the hell is going on? I have everything, everything you're supposed to have. I had all the perfect things, but I was so dead, so unhappy. Oh my gosh. So when you made that decision to quit your job, to travel, what did that discussion look like with your partner when you kind of broke that news to them? Well, at the time that I quit, I actually was not in partnership anymore. Mm. So Mm -hmm. that was pretty convenient. (laughs) You don't have to consult anybody. (laughs) Yeah. To not have to break that news. Yeah. Yeah. So I had that going for me. (laughs) Wow. I have so many follow-up questions. I'm like, maybe the whole podcast could be this. But like, what were the reactions from other people in your life, whether it be friends or family or coworkers? Well, contrary to calling myself a robot zombie, I have been like really independent and marched to the beat of my own drum in certain ways, like in self-expression, but not in like major life decisions like career path or college or college majors. And so they weren't surprised, but they they were scared, scared and worried. Mm-hmm. If anyone is familiar with being a nomad or a digital nomad, which means you're you're working while traveling, you would be familiar with like the lonely life of that. Because when you first decide something like that, everybody's just like so interested and they want pictures and all this stuff, or they're resentful and pissed off and jealous and kind of rude about it. But the interested ones like fall away. It's kind of like a death when somebody dies. Like when my mom died, people were like obsessively checking in for the first two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. 15% of those people were still checking in for a month. And then 1% of the 15% like ever asked again how I'm doing. That's how it is with travel too. Mm-hmm. It's like lonely after a while. So They were either interested and excited or resentful, and then they fell away within a few weeks. (laughs) My gosh. And then do you feel like the people who you met at that, I would say, kind of transition period of your life, it's kind of like a phase two, if you will. Do you feel like you have more of those people who are in your life today, or do you still have some of the people who knew you as corporate Monica? Ooh, I don't think I have any corporate... Monica, I actually go by Monica Jane. So I don't think I have any corporate Monica Jane people in my life at all. Wow. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't surprise me, Leslie, because I was not myself. If they were in my life today, they would have no idea who I am. So I wasn't connecting with people because I wasn't connected with myself. Yeah, that's totally fair. That makes a lot of sense. It's like now that you have this opportunity to be totally true to yourself. It makes sense that you would be able to make the connections that are going to serve you and stick around for a long period of time. Yeah, definitely. And you know what really was the catalyst that put me in touch with myself? It was the erotic blueprints. Wow. So to come full circle with the story of my mom covering my eyes and my ears when anything arousing was happening on the television, She would also tell me as we walked down the street or whatever, if we got unsolicited attention and admiration, she would say, don't react, don't change your face, don't give them what they want. Oh, wow. Okay. So what that taught my body is 
don't be yourself because we are an expression of the life force creativity within us, which is Eros, which is our eroticism. So I love my mom. Don't get me wrong. She's my favorite person ever on the planet. And my mom killed my essence, my deepest core expression and truth of my identity by cutting me off from my turn on and arousal. And so just like with everything else in life, I was trying to be all the things you're supposed to be in sex and sexuality. So I was going straight for nakedness and penetration because that's how you please a man. And at that time, I thought I was heterosexual. So that's what I was pursuing. And what I found with the erotic blueprints, when I was actually seen for who I am as an erotic being and given permission and a framework and vocabulary to explore that, I finally found my turn on and my authentic arousal. And what I've come to know since then is that your turn on is your yes. Your arousal and turn on is a compass that lights the path to that which is life giving. And your turn off is a compass that lights the path to that which is life taking. So I was making so many life taking decisions without knowing it because I wasn't attuned to my body. I wasn't attuned to the the equipment, the compass that we're all born. It's our birthright to be connected to that. And I was disconnected. So once I got connected to my actual true turn on, I was able to start saying yes to things that were an actual yes and no to things that weren't. And one of the words you used earlier was like being brave. Just because you find out about the erotic blueprints and you learn this about yourself, it doesn't mean you're automatically going to say yes to the things that are yes for you and no to the things that aren't. You'll just know what they are. You'll fill them in your body more and you'll be more attuned. And you do need to conjure up that bravery to maybe disappoint some people and maybe piss some people off, maybe lose some people from your life, but you'll gain and attract that which is life-giving for you. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if the things that make up somebody's erotic blueprint, from your understanding, would you say that they're more driven by nature and just kind of your biology and things that are more immutable or by nurture and your experience? I am so interested in this question. One of the things that we need to tell the listeners is there is a quiz for the erotic blueprints and I'll give you the link so that maybe it can go in the show notes or something, or people can visit my Instagram and there's a button in the bio link for the erotic blueprint quiz. That quiz lets you check some boxes and it tells you what blueprint you are. I've observed thousands of people in this erotic awakening and it's very much from nurture, what we were taught. And so we're answering it in the way we think we're supposed to, to get the results to be something that we don't feel ashamed of when we see them. Mm, Yeah. That's very relatable. And I have not yet taken the erotic blueprint quiz, but I'm so excited to take it after. But I feel like anytime I take any sort of test, 
I'm trying to be the most open that I can be because obviously it's only useful if you are honest with yourself. But deep down, there are definitely those answers where you're like, I know this about myself, but like this sucks and I don't want to admit to it and have this reflected in my results. Like I had an Enneagram coach on and I remember when I took that quiz, I was like, I hate this so much, but it's so accurate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's things that will be revealed that you don't want to see about yourself because nurture taught you that that is wrong. That is something to be ashamed or guilty of. And so what we find as coaches is when my clients get to module three or four of the erotic blueprint breakthrough course study, that's where we get into the body. So it's all heady at first. And then we start testing the body. So for instance, I gave some examples at the beginning there about somebody who's having erectile issues. Maybe they don't want you to put your mouth on their genitals right away. That would be a sexual blueprint. Mm -hmm. Maybe what they need is some massage and some romance and some oil and good lighting and music. That would be a sensual blueprint. And then maybe they need like a lot of anticipation and build up that you don't just like go straight to it. And so that would be like an all day long date or a longer date. And when you get to the moment of being able to be physically intimate, you don't go straight for it. You walk like eight feet away from them in the room and you just look at them. That's an energetic blueprint. And then there's kinky, where maybe it depends if they're psychologically kinky or sensation-based kinky, what would facilitate them to maintain an erection. And then there's shapeshifter that needs all of the things and needs the variety. So when you're taking the quiz, you might read something that makes you uncomfortable. So you select a different answer, but just because you're uncomfortable about it doesn't mean it's not a turn on for you. So the body, I believe, might be affected a little bit by nurture, but it's very much nature. Your animal lives inside of here and the body doesn't lie. Now, if your mind is super powerful and you had to recover and it took you years like me, your mind might be able to control your body and pretend like you're not turned on. And that that brings us to the topic of anorgasmia, the inability to orgasm. So if you want to go into that, it's a great segue right now. Yeah, that is so perfect. You're such a pro. And yeah, I would love to talk about it because I feel like you opened up about the fact that until you were 28, you weren't sure if you were having orgasms and that your mom went her entire life being unsure. So for vulva-bodied people who have difficulty having them, I think that's a particular area of focus because I just feel like it seems more elusive in our society. It's not something that people talk about as much as penile ejaculation. And so I would love to talk about the prevalence of anorgasmia and how you kind of distinguish actual anorgasmia from just a lack of familiarity with your body and understanding what your turn-ons are and when you're experiencing an orgasm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So there's like a bunch of things that I want to respond to in there. As an LGBTQIA plus educator, I want to say that the reason why Leslie and I are using genitalia in this conversation is because we're talking about sex acts that involve the genitalia. It is not kind to refer to someone as vulva-bodied or cock-bodied if the genitalia isn't 
the most important thing about what you're saying. So I just want to put that in there. And then the mention of penile ejaculation, there's a piece here about climax and orgasm. And people conflate climax with orgasm. What we'll find out in my story about recovering from anorgasmia or the inability to orgasm is I was mixing climax with orgasm. So climax is like a momentary blip. It's a momentary peak. It's the thing that a lot of people think of with the mainly cis female head tipped back, like screaming or like, <laughs> yes, like back arched. <laughs> like you said, penile ejaculation, that could be considered climax. Sometimes penises ejaculate and they're not in climax. So there's that too. There's so much nuance here, but this is fascinating. I had no idea. I've been conflating the two, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was part of my recovery. So I'm excited that we're going to talk about it because it might open up some awesome sexual health and wellness and erotic potential for you and for the listeners to be untangling those two terms. So orgasm is the rise in arousal and turn on And that could be very little and then um, stay at that level and just be a flat line. It could consistently be rising up. It could edging is something where you bring it up and you're almost at climax, but you maintain just underneath climax. And then this is a technique that you can use to build your capacity for pleasure. So if you flatline that, just under climax for long enough, the quote unquote threat of climax goes away and you can raise the pleasure level even more. You go uphill more. It's like stair steps. You go up more, almost climaxing, flatline the arousal. Like don't make the person more aroused. Don't try not to have it be less aroused and stay flat there. And then when the threat of climax goes away, you go up another stair step. So this is edging. And this is orgasmic energy. So the medical system uses the term anorgasmia. Mm -hmm. And we mainly think of that as inability to climax for anyone. Anyone can have this, no matter the genital makeup that you have. So I forgot the question that you asked me because I got all excited about talking about those other points. I mean, that's so fascinating. I actually got excited about the edging too. I was like, we are on the same page because I was literally going to ask you what that process is like. And so the original question was really just kind of how do you distinguish actual anorgasmia, like the medical definition of it from just not really knowing your body, not understanding if you have had an orgasm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I don't even know if I know the answer to that question. The thing that comes to mind, and this is not like an educated answer, is like if you've tried freaking everything and still don't know if you've reached climax or felt orgasmic energy to the degree that you desire in your body, then perhaps you're experiencing anorgasmia. Mm -hmm. But the segue into this was if your mind gets so strong, it can ignore what's happening in the body. Because I had said, the body doesn't lie when we get to the segment where we stop asking your mind to understand the erotic blueprints and we come down into your body and try a really light touch where we're like barely skimming the hairs on your forearm. That's an energetic touch. And we see what happens in your body when we do that. When we change that to like scratching your 
making marks on your arm and like stingy sensations. We see what your body does. When we like do like a contour deep, really presence filled, attentive massage, we see how your body responds. And each of those examples, the first one, the light touch was energetic. The scratch might be kinky for you if you like are afraid of having marks on your skin or like doing something that could damage your body or something like that. And then the last example was sensual blueprint. So anyway, my journey was I did all the things, like all of the things, and I still wasn't having the experience that other people explained and talked about happened in their bodies. And like I said, it took me about two years to really hear my mother's permission to be more open and adventurous sexually. So I, through all of that, about, I don't know, a year into that exploration, I am on a massage table with a professional tantric practitioners, a daka and a dakini, and another person that was like a pleasure expert for women. I identified female at the time. And they're doing their work to stimulate my body. And they're all standing like near the foot end of the massage table, looking between my legs with their heads cocked and their eyebrows furrowed, <laughs> and their hands on their chin. <laughs> That's not what you want to see when you're like trying to have an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> Look, <laughs> that's hilarious. Looking at each other. Sometimes it has to be a little clinical when you're investigating what's going on with the body. And that's funny that you, you say that. That's not what you want to see when you're trying to orgasm. Definitely in lots of contexts and maybe most 99% of the contexts, it's not. <laughs> but I want to take this opportunity to normalize that if you go to a sexological body worker or a DACA or a Dakini or somebody who's going to help you work through these things, it's not about romance. It's not about connection. It's not about relationship. It's about them serving your body in the way that your body needs to get to the result that you've asked and hired them and paid them to help you with. So yes, this wasn't a, a romantic, intimate time. It was like, let's figure out what the hell is going on with Monica Jane's body. So back to them at the foot of the bed, <laughs> the foot of the massage table, scratching their chins and looking up, up at the sky and looking between my legs and then looking at my face and looking between my legs. They're like, Monica Jane, your body is in orgasmic energy right now. And I was like, what? They're like, it is contracting. Your vagina is contracting and pulsing. You're engorged so much that like your G-spot is coming out the introitus of your vagina because you're so engorged. The coloring is like deep purple and you're contracting right now. You're like actually having maybe a climax right now. And I was, I was just laying there like nothing was going on. And they're like, this is great news. Your body is capable of it. Your body's doing it but you're just not translating it in your mind. I mean, that's just so deep of like, I would be, to their point, it is exciting, but I would still be daunted of like, okay, well, how do I get out of this mental state and into a state where my mind is ready to accept it? It's exactly that. It was just like when my mom said, I don't know. And I was like, what do you mean you don't know? It's like, come on, tell me the answer. You're like, that's not what I wanted to hear. Yeah. 
yeah. yay body, but why the hell is my brain or body not talking to each other? And so I want to point out, this isn't the case in everyone's situation where they're experiencing symptoms of anorgasmia, but it was for my body. And I wonder and haven't done any scientific research. If somebody wants to fund my study, reach out. I wonder if a lot of bodies, especially bodies of people who were socialized female, because we're not supposed to be sexual, we're sluts and whores. If we're socialized female and we're sexual, I wonder if a lot of the bodies of socialized females are having orgasmic experiences, but the neurons are cut off from their head translating it. Yeah. I have so many thoughts about this. And yeah, going back to what I was saying earlier about how it's so stigmatized for people who, to your point, are socialized female, I will never forget. There's this one time where I had a guy friend in high school. And he was the only guy amongst me and other female friends. And he asked us, do you guys masturbate? And, you know, it was taboo. I was like, I don't know, 17 or something. And so I had tried. I wasn't experienced by any means. But before I could even decide if I wanted to answer honestly, one of the girls in the group was like, ew, that's disgusting. And so naturally I was like, oh yeah, like me either. I don't do that. (laughs) You know, and it's just, It sucks because it's not like I stopped, but it definitely perpetuated the narrative that that's not something that women are either supposed to do, or if you do it, you sure as hell aren't supposed to talk about it. Whereas I feel like in society, we have so many jokes about males jerking off and it's just like seen as something that's funny and fine to talk about and and normal. Yeah. And that's so crazy to me. And I don't understand why that is. I think that it's getting better with time. But it still is nowhere near equal in the way that people have different comfort levels about talking about these two experiences. So, so wild to me. And then another thing that I wanted to talk about is just what you were saying about the brain and the body being disconnected from each other. And I've read studies that show that certain areas of a female identifying brain have to be turned off in order to attain orgasm, whereas those same centers of the brain don't have to be turned off in male-identifying people. And so, for example, it's like when you hear women like joking all the time about how if you're stressing about how you have to wake up in five hours or like maybe you hear a loud sound and you're suddenly worried about what that is, it's like, okay, it's not going to happen, even if you were so close. And it's always made me wonder, is meditation something that you can do to kind of learn how to clear your mind so that you are out of your head and you're just able to focus on what's happening to your body. And so would love to hear if that's something that you did or what tips and tricks were recommended as you realized that your mind was kind of preventing you from experiencing this. Mm, Wow. We need to have like eight podcast episodes. (laughs) This is the prologue and then we'll have episode one. (laughs) Yep. A whole series. So it's case by case. If I had tried meditation and like mindful meditation or mantra meditation, or I don't know all of the names of meditation, watching my thoughts and trying not to attach to them meditation or reciting a mantra over and over or insight meditation or like that would not have worked for me because as a defense, 
growing up in a dysfunctional household, my brain became very powerful and protective of me. And so I don't see how meditation would have worked for me to get into my body. I would have very much been even more fortified in my mind. Mm. And I'm not saying that's the truth for everyone. And I'm really curious about how we would ever find out. But my, I actually despise the concept of tips and tricks. Mm, okay. Because tips and tricks are like band-aids and they're temporary. Mm-hmm. They work sometimes and they don't work other times. Or they're like bypassing. They're like tricks. They're tricking things. That's true. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. So depending on what the thing is, if it's like a tip or a trick to like keep the windshield of my car clean more (laughs) often than is like, cool, whatever. But when we're talking (laughs) about human bodies, when we're talking about like beings, we're not a freaking robot, even though I like pretended like I was for so long. Mm -hmm. We're not robots Mm -hmm. and we're not machines. We are organic beings that recycle cells. Every cell is recycled like every 90 days mm-hmm. at different times. If, <laughs> if every cell, if every cell regenerated, <laughs> we would like disappear and then poof, come back, disappear, poof, and come back. So honestly, for me, it was very much, it was a lot of things. And we'll just list them rather than like narrate all the stories. Cause like I said, we'd need eight podcast episodes for that. (laughs) Here's a list of things that helped me. One, get myself around a group of people that were like me and what was like me at that time were females. So get yourself around a group of people like you that represent you, that you see yourself when you look at them, who are sex positive and pursuing pleasure who are having the same issues or similar issues or other kinds of issues, but in the realm of sexuality in this case, who are struggling in some way because I was struggling. Find mentors who can help you get to where you want to go. I was so, my skin crawled when I first saw this mentor because she was so sensual. She was like Mm -hmm. the antithesis of everything my mom taught me to act like, be like, look like, dress like, etc. But I hired that mentor because at the time I was way into like feminine energy and masculine energy. And like, I had to be a goddess to be like (laughs) worthwhile and find a partner and stuff. And so I hired mentors and guides who had what I didn't and like could prove it or they were multiple steps ahead of me on the path and could guide me through what had worked for them. Mm-hmm. That's probably step one is up until the point that I started pursuing all of this or rather up until the point that my mom gave me permission, I was living by the permission that I had been given by society and my mom. Like I was all the things that I was told were acceptable and okay. And then I had to give myself the permission to be more open and adventurous sexually. Without that, and if I were just pushing myself, it would be a betrayal rather than bravery and courage. Mm. It would be trigger warning, raping myself, forcing myself into situations that I 
hadn't given permission to myself for, hadn't consented to. So actually, let's use the word consent as well as permission because we're talking in the realms of sexuality and consent and boundaries are huge. Mm -hmm. So if I had it to do over again, I would have known that consent and boundaries is step one in the world of sexuality. And I may not have done some of the stuff that I did. I may not have allowed some of the practitioners to get away with some of the things that happened as I was pursuing this healing. Oh, wow. Because okay. there is some shitty stuff that happens because there's power dynamics and we're desperate for yeah. to reclaim this aspect of ourselves. And so we just give our power away to these gurus, these sex gurus and stuff. So you've got to be careful. So consent and boundaries with self, permission surround myself with representation like me and hire mentors. Because up until that point, I was 17 when I first started looking up, why am I not orgasming on the internet? And that was like the year 2000. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm like hiding in the library, like, why am I not orgasming? And then I went on to buy all the books. Mm -hmm. I read some of some of the books. And I hid behind research and I didn't implement. So I would say to people who might be struggling with this, like in the erratic blueprint framework, we call it curiosity, like mm -hmm. stuck in curiosity and information gathering. Mm -hmm. And the next stage is adventure, mm -hmm. which means try the stuff. Mm -hmm. And then after adventure comes transformation. And sometimes we need to be in healing. And sometimes we need to be resting. And so I would say just be conscious of where your own consent and boundaries are with yourself, where you are in your journey, whether you need to be resting, healing, curious and investigating, adventurous and doing all the things and mm -hmm. or transforming. Yeah. I feel like it's such a process and it must require a lot of patience with yourself. And as somebody who has very little patience, I can see how that would be a struggle and how people might kind of give up on the journey if it's just not happening at the rate that they think it quote unquote should be happening. Totally. I want to say I, I wanted to give up. I mean, I went through my entire decade of the twenties with this issue, this quote unquote defect, this like attitude that I was broken and I wanted to give up a lot. And even finding out like, your body is doing it. Your physiology is doing it, but your brain's just not letting you experience it. Even after knowing my body was doing it and trying to figure out how to get those neurons to fully fire and be translated by my mind or allow for my mind to allow myself to feel safe enough to experience the lack of control. That's what orgasmic energy is. And especially climax, like it's, it's scary. And it did require a lot of patience and bravery and courage and some missteps and some triumphs. Yeah. And just like a lot of vulnerability, honestly. And so I would love to hear as you were kind of going through this, was it entirely a solo journey where you were thinking, I need to focus on this myself before I can put any energy towards a sexual partner? Were you still with partners at the time while you were going on this journey? And if you were, were you kind of communicating to them what you were going through and explaining where you were at and why you might not be able to orgasm in the way that they might have expected? 
Yeah, these are really good questions. I feel like we should have a book writer here because I know. <laughs> we're really diving in. <laughs> I haven't reflected to this depth on a lot of this. So my journey from in earnest moving into the adventure and out of curious and actually doing and embodying and practicing was probably a year or a year and a half. Okay. Before that, I had 13 years under my belt of Mm -hmm. internet searches, buying the books, maybe reading some of the books, intending to do all the practices in the come as you are and all of these books, but I just didn't, I just didn't. Mm -hmm. So I had accountability with that group of like humans that were learning and struggling with the same things. I had a sense of them normalizing that you can overcome these things that feel impossible. So I think in that time frame, I dated some people, but I didn't have like a steady person. Mm-hmm. I was definitely being adventurous with partners and with myself at the same time. And after I learned about the erotic blueprints, I was like dabbling in, actually, it might have been before. That's really interesting. I was dabbling in like stepping into the realms of kink and BDSM and learned that I love to be a rope bunny and things like this. So I was expanding and opening and trying things that I had never allowed myself or given myself permission to try. Mm-hmm. Wow. So really just like a holistic journey of not only how do I experience this, but what does it even take for me to experience this to the fullest? That's so interesting. Yeah. I know this is obviously a very personal question, but in as general terms as you want to describe, what was that moment like where you felt like, oh, this was my breakthrough and I'm here, I have arrived, I've mastered this. Like, was it such an aha moment or was it more gradual than that? That is a really good question. I've actually been sitting here nervous in my seat that you might ask me that because I I don't have some like, movie type story to tell you where like all of a sudden the sky opened and the heavens came down and I remembered who I am and I met God. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh shit, she's probably going to ask me that. And (laughs) I don't have something awesome. It was more gradual. I actually am like sitting here going, do I even remember when I had my first like climax? So there's some highlights. I don't know if it's like an orgasmic highlight, but I was in a class about the jade egg and a jade egg is like what it sounds like. It's made out of jade. Nephrite jade is the crystal that they say is non-permeable and the safest one to use. And it's just like egg shaped. Some come with like a hole drilled through them so you can put a string of floss on them because a lot of vulva bodied people have worry that like it's going to get stuck up in there and they won't be able to get it out. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. That was my first concern. (laughs) (laughs) That can happen, especially with like vaginismus where the muscles contract, but when you relax, like anyway, another podcast for another day. (laughs) I remember squatting on the ground and we're like in a group class and we're squatted on the ground and the teacher invites us to put our fingers inside and find the cervix. So that day I put my hand, you know, my fingers in there and I was feeling for the cervix and the cervix 
kind of hangs down. It's kind of like thumb shaped. It might be thicker. It might be thinner. And I felt it. And she was teaching us reflexology. So like the bottom part of the cervix relates to a certain organ and the middle part to another and the top part to another. And I remember one of them was the heart. And I just like, I broke down in tears. I was like, oh my God, God, she's so beautiful. And like, I could feel her. I could feel the connection to my viscera, to my organ. And it was just like union with my body, with myself and like everybody, everybody and all of their parts deserve to feel that union. And what society and religion does is strips us of that connection to our body and our wholeness. So that was like a big moment for me because the first time I ever felt my cervix, this is hilarious. This was like, I don't know, two years before this. Mm -hmm. I was on my period. So I was like fishing out a tampon or something. I don't remember, but I put my fingers up in there and mind you, I didn't masturbate. Like I didn't masturbate. I didn't, if I learned how or was ever like caught doing that, caught, I put in quotation marks because why do we call it catching a kid? Like as if they knew they were supposed to hide the first, anyway. If I was ever found masturbating, it was just like so shamed and guilted out of me that like, I don't even remember. Yeah, I'm a vulva bodied person with my hand up there, like trying to get this tampon out or something. I don't remember, but I felt quote something in there that was not the tampon and I freaked out. It felt like there was a small penis, like boner, hard penis inside of my vulva. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I don't know, two to three inches long. And I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I like ran into the bedroom and like screamed. And my partner at the time was like, what, what happened? And I told him and he had been a medic in the army. And so he knew anatomy really well. Thank God, because he said to me, Baby, that's just your cervix. It's probably just your cervix. Hey, that's so impressive. And I know that's his profession, but I feel like the majority of people without those body parts would never even think. I like my mind wouldn't even go there. I would be like, oh, I wonder what's going on. I would just be in the dark. Yeah. So, I mean, I was taught to be so afraid of my turn on and arousal and therefore super afraid of the betrayal of my genitalia. And then there's this freaking scary, I got so grossed out and scared. It felt, I was like, do I have a penis <laughs> inside of my vagina? It's going the direction that a penis would be going if I had a oh. penis. And he's like, I promise, baby, it's just your cervix. He's like, I would know. you. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward a couple years later, and I'm squatting on the floor with all of these like people that we're going through similar things and learning similar things and at similar spaces in their sexual and erotic liberation. And I just had this beautiful union with my, a part of my parts, my cervix. And so when you ask me like, was it gradual or was it like, like I said, the sky opening up, it was very gradual. And I think it was just Mm -hmm. like moments like that, that really had me grow into being able to give my brain or my brain being able to give itself 
permission to experience that much pleasure, that much joy. You know, Mm -hmm. when you grow up in that kind of environment of, you know, alcoholism and dysfunctional family unit, feeling emotions isn't allowed. The addict is the one who feels the emotions and there's enough from them to fill the entire house. Mm -hmm. So I heard somebody the other day say the level to which you are able to allow your emotions to happen and to be experienced is the level to which it's directly correlated to the level of arousal and turn on that you can experience. And I really believe that when my mom was sick, that is one of the conversations I had with her was about emotions because somebody gifted her, and this is a little woo-woo, I don't know how woo (laughs) the listeners are, but (laughs) it is like LA-based, right? Yeah, so we range the spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) Someone gave my mom the Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life book. And what that book is, it's like a glossary or encyclopedia of all the different types of ailments that our body can have and the metaphysical meaning, the message, and then an affirmation to like undo the damage we've done to our body for the metaphysical reason. So Mm -hmm. my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and there's a few metaphysical reasons. One is like not expressing your creativity. One is not expressing your sexuality. And (laughs) And one is not expressing your emotions. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So my mom really took that to heart. She was like, I haven't expressed my emotions throughout life. Like there were a lot of hardships. I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't like ask for help. And so she really took that to heart that when you don't express your emotions, it affects your second chakra center and you can get cancer in your ovaries. And so I've really worked on being able to feel and express my emotions. Like it sucks so bad that I had to lose my mom at 28. And by the way, it was 10 years ago this year, 10 years ago in 2021. So thanks for letting us honor her so much in this episode. And I've worked really hard to feel my emotions. It was like, I tried to be so even keel. Mm -hmm. This is the deadness that we live in when we are disconnected to our turn on and arousal. Mm -hmm. This is the deadness that we live in when we allow society, culture, religion, and family to tell us who we are and how to be. And we abide by that without listening to ourselves. So Mm -hmm. my range of experience was so boring. And since my, but it was safe and controlled and composed and perfect. But from that encouragement from my mom and one of my best friends at the time telling me, you need to learn how to feel your emotions. My wave now goes Mm -hmm. all the way up and all the way down. And this this really does increase the the range of human experience. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get a little philosophical for a second. You're not seeing what I'm seeing exactly and experiencing what I'm experiencing exactly. And I'm not what you are. And so each of our individual realities is created from our thoughts, from the images, from our body sensations, and from our emotions. So if you don't allow your body sensations, if you don't allow your emotions, if you push away and don't like see the images, what's really in front of you, or push away your thoughts and try to not experience them, if you do that to any one of those four elements, And then there's a fifth element in somatic theory of movement. 
So if you discount or don't allow any one or more of those elements, you're not letting yourself experience the fullness of your reality. Mm -hmm. And something that really drives body sensation and emotion is turn on and arousal. Mm -hmm. So I was stuck in thought and image channels. That's it. Mm -hmm. And I had to awaken movement to allow myself to not be a stiff robot. I had to awaken sensation and emotion so that I could allow them. So basically it's like a resuscitation of the fullness of reality. Mm -hmm. So that was a little like... (laughs) That's so much to unpack and unlearn after like literally decades. Oh, thank you for saying that because how often were you told, don't feel that way? Oh my gosh. It doesn't itch. Behave yourself. Mm-hmm. Like having your hair put in pigtails. It doesn't hurt. Shut up. Yeah. And those things stick with you. Stop being sad. All of these things. And so people don't realize when they say those things to us as adults and growing up, they are erasing our unique experience, how we're wired to experience reality in that moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Every time you kind of, you know, explain more of your journey, I just have so many thoughts that I want to follow up with. And so I guess for one of them, it's interesting to go back a little bit further where you said that you didn't have this experience that was like, oh, the sky opened up and it was this climactic, like memorable thing that always take with me, except for, of course, when you were in the, like the group session with people who Mm -hmm. were kind of going on the same journey as yourself. I wanted to say that I was not at all disappointed with that response. I feel like the only time where you would think that you would have that experience, it's like at the end of the 40 year old virgin where he finally has sex for the first time. And then he breaks out into song, like, That is not reality, (laughs) but I feel like that's kind of like what people might envision. They're like, oh my God, your first orgasm. But thinking about it, I'm like, I literally don't remember the first time I orgasmed either with myself or with a partner. What I do remember is the first time that I had sex with someone and I was like, maybe I orgasmed or I was like, this might've been the first time that I orgasmed with a partner. But in hindsight, I feel like if you have to ask, like maybe it didn't happen, like, I don't know. I still don't know if I did. And maybe I was just disconnected in my mind as well because I was so in my head about it. I love that you're saying this because the experience of wondering doesn't necessarily mean that you're not. It might mean that you're not. But what else it might mean is that your expectation of what it should feel like or be like isn't being met. And this points to sex with partners as well. So many of us miss out on what is because it isn't what we're expecting. It isn't what we want. It isn't what we think it should be. And so I I love that you're bringing, you're just bringing up so much good stuff. You're bringing it out of me. (laughs) (laughs) I just had at the end of April, the most amazing self-pleasure, orgasmic experience I've ever had. And this is, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years 
down the road Mm -hmm. from that conversation with my mom and from the two years later of starting on this journey. Yes. I had never, outside of the shower, using the shower head, I had never, I don't know if I had ever had orgasmic tremors or climax. I could only do it in the shower because Mm -hmm. mind you, I said I didn't grow up masturbating. Like I just started in the last decade, like Mm -hmm. figuring it out. And I started from a place of knowing how it should go. And when you know how it should go with something so organic, like sexuality, you miss what is. Mm -hmm. Because like I said earlier, we are not robots. We are not machines. So it's going to be different every single time as well. Because guess what happened in the most amazing orgasmic self-pleasure outside of the shower experience that just happened for me two weeks ago? I got zeroed in on thoughts and images because I felt amazing sensation and I immediately closed my eyes, furrowed my brow, went into my mind's eye and I was like, what's touching what and how? Because I was using two different toys at once on my genitals plus like my thumb or something. And I was like, what's where? I got to see this exactly. Like what's touching what? I have to be able to duplicate this. And then the sensation started going down. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Because I practice switching through these channels and I am conscious that this is what creates my reality, I was able to switch out of thought and image and go straight back to the sensation. And then that's when the multiple orgasms started happening. It was like, fuck the details. I don't need the image. I don't need the thought. I don't need the details. Just feel it, baby. Just feel it. And then it was amazing. We do that in partnered sex. We do that in solo sex. We do that in multi-partnered sex. Mm -hmm. We do that at work. We do that when we're driving our car. We do that when we're making our food. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be this way. Or how exactly is this supposed to go? Mm -hmm. And so I want to invite everyone, all the listeners, to allow yourself to not know. Because that is killing us. Like these articles and magazines that are like, mind-blowing sex forever. And you read this article (laughs) and find out exactly how to formulate the most mind-blowing sex ever. Mind you, that article might be written for a sensual blueprint Mm -hmm. and you're with someone who is not. So it is not going to work. And then you think you're a failure. You go into it knowing, quote unquote, knowing exactly how it should go. You try it, it bombs. And then you think you're broken or you suck at sex. So what would the world be like if we all just allowed our erotic innocence to be present in our erotic experiences? No knowing, no superiority, just that childlike innocence that has you discover and uncover with like wonder, curiosity, joy, and play at new things every time, new things every time. Yeah. And I also think that's so important just because I think sometimes, you know, for people who might be experiencing difficulty, it can maybe become this prescriptive thing, either when you're with yourself or where you're with your partner, where you're kind of like, well, this is what works. So this is what we have to do. And I feel like I have two thoughts about this because for myself, 
when I was kind of like, okay, like I'm sexually active, but like, I'm not experiencing what everyone describes that you should be experiencing. And I was trying to figure this out for myself. I'm going to be honest. It kind of felt like homework. Like I remember the first time I ordered a sex toy and I was like, all right, I think I just need to like teach myself this. And yeah, it's not like, oh, it was not enjoyable, but it wasn't like it was coming from a place of fun and exploration. But yeah, I think it's just so important to like, not really view it as homework. And then also not get into the pattern of like, okay, I found this one thing that works because it's not going to be like that every time you're with a partner. And then you're going to get so in your head when it deviates even a little bit. So for me, it kind of was like, you know, you mentioned the shower head. And I feel like I must have read that in some book, or maybe I saw it in again, the 40 year old virgin that scene with Elizabeth Banks. And I was like, okay, that looks like something that works. But then it's like, okay, you're not going to be having shower sex all the time. So like, you need to kind of explore and like, learn how to do this yourself when there's not a toy. And so I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for people who learn how to experience an orgasm with themselves, but then are still having trouble with a partner? And also people who might worry that if they teach themselves how to orgasm using a sex toy that they might not be able to get there with a partner unless that sex toy is still present. Mm, Yeah. Oh my God. There are so many possibilities for why someone might not be able to experience orgasmic energy or climax with a partner. That is such a huge question. First off, I would highly recommend them if they didn't have access to anything else in the world other than themselves and their own body, I would recommend that they really take a look at what about their self-pleasure practice turns them on, arouses them, and has them come into the space of climax or even orgasmic energy. What are the qualities of it? Are they fantasizing? Are they not fantasizing? Are the lights on? Are the lights off? Is there music or no music? Is the room nice and neat? Are they in public being totally naughty? (laughs) Is there a naughty or a forbidden factor to the self-pleasure? I'm actually pulling from a concept from Jack Marin, who wrote The Erotic Mind. His concepts inspired Jaya to create The Erotic Blueprints. And it's called looking at your peak erotic experiences. So really looking at the most awesome self-pleasure times and moments. So let's look at my last one. Let's put this like to practice. One of my core brand values is practical life skills. Like I don't like talking theory and philosophy. I want to give you something that you can implement today. Love that. Make it worth your time. And also like embodiment, not just tips and tricks. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> We know how I feel about tips and tricks. Strong feelings. So peak erotic experience with my self-pleasure recently. I was at my friend's house, not mine. There was someone else in the house upstairs and I didn't know if they could hear me or not. And I'm some somewhat of an exhibitionist. So that was kind of like, hee hee hee. (laughs) My friend was actually out of town and not around. So I couldn't like ask if I could go into their bedroom and lay on their floor for this. But I did anyway. So, another naughty component. I have a very high kinky erotic blueprint. I was using two different toys. One was a suction toy, and another was a vibration toy. So, shapeshifter, Mm -hmm. I need lots of different types of stimulation. 
There was a kitty cat like running around, two kitty cats running around. I love cats. It was like dark and they they weren't really close to me, but that cat energy I like. What else? It was pitch dark, so I couldn't like see anything. The room was really big. They're really great at like designing. So it was like really like posh. Mm. Plenty of lube, which I rarely have used lube self-pleasuring outside of the shower because I haven't self-pleasured a lot outside of the shower. So there was tons of lubrication. Again, I was using their lube because I didn't bring lube. So I was stealing lube. (laughs) (laughs) Another naughty component. (laughs) So it's like, look at the components and look for themes because then this is what Jack Marin's concept is, core erotic themes. And so like, what are the themes of your peak erotic experiences? And then bring those to your partnered experience because what might be happening Mm -hmm. and especially socialized female is you just want to please them so that you're accepted, you belong, you're protected, you're safe, yada, yada, yada. And so talk about these components, these themes, and ask for them to be a part of the experience. Mm -hmm. That's one out of like a thousand answers that I have to that question. But for the sake of the podcast, we'll give them one. Yeah, They can come to me if they want more. Amazing. So one thing that I also wanted to go back to, and again, just another callback because I feel like we have so many follow-up topics that we keep branching off into because this topic is so nuanced and layered. You painted a very vivid picture of the support group where you know you are exploring your bodies with a group of like-minded people. And it just sounds like a very unique, but also powerful experience. And so I wonder where people might be able to begin this search if they are listening and thinking that that's a group that would be beneficial for them on their journey. Yeah, of course. I really do believe that surrounding yourself with people that that was a turning point for me. It's like, I'm not alone in this journey. Oh, other people are self-conscious about this. Oh, other people are struggling about, oh, there's people who can support us. When you work with an erotic blueprint coach, it's called Erotic Freedom Club. And the only way in is through a coach and the erotic blueprint breakthrough journey. So you have people who have a certain level of sex education for pleasure that you have that common ground to go from. So not to sound like I'm self-promoting, there are over 200 certified erotic (laughs) blueprint coaches that you can seek out, but I would love to work with you and get you into the Erotic Freedom Club. And then another option would be to go to my Instagram. I am Monica Jane, I-A-M-M-O-N-I-C-A-J-A-Y-N-E and look at who I'm following. And in who I'm following... There are so many incredible sex educators and there's possibilities to be in a group experience for a workshop. Oh, Like that's not much of a commitment. And then there's possibilities when you do the erotic blueprint breakthrough journey with me, it could be that you're in that journey for eight weeks and it could be that you're in that journey for 12 months. It just depends on our work together. And you will be a lifetime member of the Erotic Freedom Club. So because I haven't needed to seek out other groups or vet them recently, I feel hesitant to recommend any. 
specifically, but through clicking who I'm following on Instagram, you'll find a lot of social justice stuff in there as well, but you'll find a lot of sex educators. And there are so many amazing sex educators out there. And again, not low commitment, three hour workshop one day to higher commitment, a 12 month erotic makeover with Monica Jane. What an experience. And I love just hearing about the variety of experiences that people can have. I feel like a lot of times when people think of any type of sex workshop, especially if there's someone within our general age who ever watched Sex in the City, they're probably imagining that sex workshop, the tantric workshop, which I imagine that's probably not what tantric is actually about, where Miranda gets come on her face. And yeah, so I think it's just important to remind listeners That is not what it is. It is a wide array of experiences depending Mm -hmm. on what you need. That actually brings up a good point, which is that could be your experience. Sex sells and it can be a very predatory environment Mm. to seek out sex education. So we have so much social media these days that you can find dirt on sex educators and you can also just be around them. Like follow my Instagram, follow a bunch of the people on my Instagram for a few months and like feel us out because like we talked about emotionality and your ability to allow a broad range and volume of low and high emotions is directly correlated to your arousal and turn on your level of safety. You must feel safe in order to experience your erotic potential. Mm -hmm. So I love Leslie, like painting the picture that that's not what it's like. And I want to say there's a lot of, a lot of crap out there that does not honor boundaries and consent. So here's some tips, what to look for when you attend a workshop, are there any rules or is there anything that's showing you that they're vetting who will actually be at the workshop? Sometimes there isn't, and sometimes it wouldn't matter to you. But if it's like one where you might be getting naked and squatting on the ground and putting your fingers on your cervix with other people around, maybe you want them to vet people. Yes. So, definitely. what, how are they vetting people? Are they vetting people at all? Two, are there any community agreements or workshop agreements that they're sending to you beforehand? You can ask before you sign up. Can you please share with me your container? agreements. Mm. If they don't know what that means, you might want to reconsider attending their workshop. Mm-hmm. When you get to the workshop, are they clear? Can they communicate clearly and directly? Do you feel safe that they can hold the space and keep keep the space as safe as possible? There's another trend in the market right now that calling places safe spaces is out of vogue and the term safer spaces started because we realized like we can't guarantee that it's safe and we're calling them brave spaces. And so in the brave space, we still have consent and confidentiality and other parts of the container agreements. So just really feel into a lot of places are like, this is a safe space. Ask them what they mean. What makes it safe? Like, why is it safe? Just because you said so? That's a power dynamic right there. And that's bullshit. Yeah. I feel like safety could be promised in such a performative way. So it's so important to just ask those follow-up questions. What actions back that? Yeah. Yeah. 
we love to call out red flags on the podcast. And so very fitting that we also have red flags for when you are seeking out these types of services for your own help and your self-pleasure journey. Yeah. And there's one more when you're in there and they're demonstrating stuff, are they having a consent conversation when they demonstrate it? Or do they just say, who wants to volunteer? And then the person comes up and they automatically put their hands on them. Or do they say, do you have any boundaries? Is there any part of your body you wouldn't like me to touch? Is there any level of clothing uh, being taken off or put on you that you have a boundary around? Are there any implements that you don't want to have used if there's, you know, like feathers and water or ice or chains and whips, like whatever's there? Mm -hmm. If there's no consent conversation and they just say, who wants to volunteer? And somebody comes up and they just automatically put their hands on them. It's a huge red flag for me. It's like, yeah, I volunteered, but we didn't talk about the autonomy of my body. And so is the autonomy of bodies being respected? Is there any kind of power plays going on? And if you haven't been around in the industry, you you might not be able to recognize power plays until after. And then you're like, oh my goodness. And maybe it happened with you or maybe you observed it with other people, but you'll start to learn. But I just hope that me sharing how to be aware of them is helpful. And anyone is welcome to slide on into my DMs if you want me to give my opinion about some group that you found or something that you're looking at or want more information on like, what do you mean power plays or container? Like, what the hell does that mean? You told me I needed to make sure they had one. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Safe spaces, braver spaces. Go ahead and send me a message and I'll, I'll be happy to help you because unsafety, lack of autonomy, power dynamics, all of this is what keeps us in bondage outside of our erotic potential and freedom and sovereignty and autonomy. Yeah, I love that. And thank you so much for offering your input and guidance. I will definitely be linking to Monica Jane's Instagram handle in the show notes. And before we close out, is there anything else that you wanted to plug for listeners? Any other resources that you wanted to make available to them at this time? Yeah, I would love to share that. I always have a freebie on my website and you can be guaranteed it's going to be a practical life skill or something that's going to help you on your path to authenticity and truth, self-expression, erotic sovereignty. And so check out the website for whatever the current freebie is. And then I also do this process called authentic evolution. And what it is, is recognizing all the things that you are taught from society, culture, religion, and family, and really having a reckoning with that because you're a full-fledged fucking adult right now. You do not need to continue subscribing to those prescriptive, to use your word from earlier, you do not need to continue subscribing to that prescriptive bullshit anymore. And even if you have things that echo in your head from your childhood, Like, you know, boys are mean, don't talk to them. Mm -hmm. But you're like, that's silly. I don't believe that anymore. I guarantee you, if it shows up in your thought patterns, it's affecting your behavior. It's affecting your reality. It's affecting those channels that we talked about, your thoughts, your images, your body sensations, your movement, your behavior, your reality in some way, shape or form. So I love so much, nothing more than private coaching. 
It's absolutely my favorite place and it's where I thrive the most as an educator. And so if you're interested and you're ready to check out what would it be like if I really pursued this in earnest, if I got out of curiosity or if I stopped oscillating between curiosity and adventure and healing and all of this and like had someone to show me boundaries and consent and how to embody this myself, then you're ready to work with someone like me as your coach. And I invite you to slide on into my DMs and ask for the application. And this is for you if you're ready to invest time, effort, energy, and money into finally realizing who you truly are as a full-fledged fucking adult, have your own two feet to stand on and feel empowered to get out of people-pleasing, to get out of being a chameleon, to get out of the robot zombie life that I gave a lot of examples of living and step into your truth, your authenticity, and access that compass that's inside of you to fully embrace your yeses and fully embrace and express and demand the no's in your life so that you can become authentically you. Highly recommend. And even if you're not quite ready to take the next step, at the very least, would recommend following Monica Jane because she, as you can clearly tell, is such a wealth of knowledge. So thank you again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And again, I will be linking to these resources in the show notes. As always, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Interstates and Heartbreak, or you can follow myself at Leslie Nope, L-E-S-L-I-E-G-N-O-P-E. Thank you so much, Monica Jane. Thank you, Leslie. I really enjoyed the show. Let's be exclusive. Subscribe to Interstates and Heartbreak wherever you listen to podcasts for more firsthand stories about the unglamorous side of dating in Los Angeles. And while you're at it, you can write me a love letter with a rating and review on Apple. See you next Sunday.